Hello, and welcome to another edition of Fossil Spouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. In recent weeks, it's become clear that Russia is pursuing a multifaceted pressure campaign on Europe. Russia is putting pressure on Europe's gas supply so that Europeans remain dependent on Russia continuing gas supplies through the winter. It is at a minimum backing Belarus as Lukashenko continues to push migrants into the European Union. In the Balkans, Moscow is encouraging Serbian nationalism. And of course, the alarm bells have been ringing louder in uh, recent days in the last couple of weeks about Russian troop movements in and around Ukraine, stoking concerns about a Russian military offensive. It is that last development, Russia's military movements around Ukraine that we wanna dive into today. And to do that, we're really pleased to have Mike Kaufman and Kadri Leek back to the Brussels Sprouts podcast. So welcome back, both of you. My pleasure. Uh, very quick introductions. Mike Kaufman serves as research program director in the Russia Studies program at CNA and as fellow at the Kennan Institute at the Woodrow Wilson Center in Washington, and of course, an adjunct here at CNES. And Kadri Leek is a senior policy fellow at the European Council on Foreign Relations. Her research focuses on Russia, Eastern Europe, and the Baltic region. And prior to ECFR, she was the director of the International Center for Defense Studies in Estonia, where she also worked as a senior researcher and director of the center's Leonard Mary Conference. All right, let's get to it. Um, what's going on, Mike? And maybe we'll start with you. Um, what are we seeing Russia do vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine that's generated such concern? Of course, we've seen Secretary of State Blinken publicly call out U.S. concerns over what they said what they termed unusual Russian military activity. CIA Director Bill Burns had a trip to Moscow and we've seen a flurry of diplomatic activity between the United States and Europe as Washington is trying to get allies on board with Washington's concerns about what's going on. So kind of maybe walk us back a little bit and you know, give us a little sense about, about what you see happening. And, and also what is different this time around than what we saw in the spring? Sure. Um, let me, Jim, actually, let me start with, uh, with your last questions first. So the truth is that actually uh, the important things are different, but these are not two separate and discrete events. It's actually one series of events that's been unfolding since early spring and continues to unfold. Uh, the reality is that a whole number of Russian units never left the region after April. They stayed there and they stayed there under uh, different uh, pretenses, and now it's very clear that Russia's repositioning forces again around Ukraine and has retained a number of units all the way from as far back as the Central Military District, Central Russia, in the region. There aren't good innocuous explanations for why. These are out-of-cycle military movements. They're actually not conducting training. They're way past certification checks. And one thing that's different that's even more worrisome is that in the spring, the movements were overt. That's why there are so many videos and you could find so much of it on social media. If you've been following over the last month, actually there are very, very few signs of Russian movements. It means that a lot of the troops are shifting at night so as to avoid being detected. They're much more covert and that's even more worrisome because it raises questions about intention, about potential Russian intentions. I think that what's happening is that over the course of the year, it's become clear that March and April was not a simple sort of uh, attempt at uh, coercion or coercive diplomacy. 
it wasn't part a dress rehearsal. The Russian military seems to be slowly positioning itself for a potential military contingency with Ukraine, a much larger one. And it looks like it's hanging around in the region expecting that something might happen in winter. Now, there are no signs that there's an imminent Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's true. And lots of, uh, I think, US government officials have said very much the same. I'd be very careful with the word imminent. It means different things in different analytical circles. Depends on, uh, on uh, what, what the real uh, criteria is. I don't think that there's going to be a Russian military operation in the coming days or weeks. But I am very worried looking into the coming months and towards this winter. We also don't know if any political decision has been made, but it does seem that the political leadership going as far back as at least a year ago has told the Russian military to be prepared to conduct a large military operation against Ukraine. And the military movements we've seen are indicative of those. They're symptomatic of a military that is, that is preparing itself for this very, very real possibility. Kadri, anything you want to uh, build on? I mean, I know that the other thing, Mike, you've talked about this too, but Kadri, to hear from your perspective is also, you know, these military movements clearly come along with a significant shift in Russian rhetoric about Ukraine. So can you talk a little bit about that and what you've picked up? Changes, whether it's, you know, the, the, the op-eds and things that Putin and Medvedev have written, uh, his comments at Valdai, what, you know, what have you picked up on in, in the sense of, it does seem like the Kremlin has very much changed its red lines and really the way that it's talking about Ukraine. Yes, what I noticed, uh, rhetoric about Ukraine and Zelensky personally has changed. It's now very uh, derogatory. And that was not the case even in the spring. I was in, in Russia in May and uh, back then the tone was different. Now it is, it is really bad. Um, Ukraine is clearly very emotional issue for President Putin. Otherwise, you know, I wouldn't necessarily connect all these dots, Ukraine and Serbia and everything that's happening. I, I think many of these things have their own separate roots and, and some uh, have some activist uh, ambassadors or whatnot behind them. Mm, so it's not coordinated. And in many ways, you can see how the political system is, is, is tired and Putin is actually very isolated i mean physically because of a pandemic he he doesn't meet very many people and people who meet him are quarantined for 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 two weeks and you know that leaves its its mark on um on on thinking and discussions um and mostly you know it's it, it didn't feel like a very pellicose country being being in, 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 in Russia. But Ukraine is the one big exception to it. Ukraine is really very emotional. And to Putin personally, I think it's it's very much sort of his agenda. Uh, uh, his very personal, personal agenda. And many people, yes, said that they don't exclude a new war. But then again, you know, when I ask, you know, what would be the strategic aim of that war and, and the extent of it, then no one could, could give me a, a good answer either. Everyone is a little bit lost. 
Um, thank you both for that. I, I certainly um, I certainly agree with with what you all have said, and I keep thinking about Poland and Belarus, and I and my fear. Oh, a couple of things. My fear is that if there's if we're going to get a provocation and a spark, and a um, a potential for a uh, a conflict, it's it's the Polish border guards doing something. Uh, to give up to give some um, cover for the Russians to say, look, we're going to send forces into Belarus. We got to protect Belarus from Poland. We're already seeing what the Polish border guards are doing, and so we suddenly have this um, this movement of forces. Uh, you know, an, an opportunity for Putin to take advantage of to move forces into Belarus, and he's ratcheting up the pressure on the border. Poland goes to NATO. NATO's now got to grapple with what to do here, and that's a big diversion from Ukraine. So that you can have all eyes uh, along the border, watching things get worse and worse there, uh, while um, while Russia quietly, covertly completes what it needs to do to do something in Ukraine. Does that sound plausible to you all? I don't think that what Russia wants to do in Ukraine can be can be done quietly. But but like in terms of just diverting Western attention to you know to another theater, another problem, and uh, and that kind of gives takes the pressure, the heat off of um, off of uh, eyes being paid uh, attention to what's happening on the border uh, with Ukraine as forces are being you know put into place and being developed. It just seems that that Lukashenko has given a gift to Putin in the sense that he's he has manufactured uh, with or without Putin's help, but he has manufactured this great diversion on the one side uh, that gives uh, Putin a little bit of relief on what he's been trying to do. Uh, on the other side, i.e., Ukraine, uh, or or are these really two separate things that are that are that are happening, uh, and uh, they're not necessarily linked. I think uh, I would rather suggest the latter. Yeah, because I um, I think Russia's position is 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 quite different on 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 Reese too. I mean, Belarus. I think it is clearly uh, Lukashenko's initiative. Uh, that Putin is tolerating, yes, absolutely, maybe even enjoying, uh, but um, it wasn't initiated by him and he doesn't have big, big stakes there. You know, he uses Lukashenko to, to troll the West and to play on European immigration fairs. Um, but I don't think there is any bigger plan behind it. I mean, you are right that things could escalate uh, because, you know, having such situation at the border, it's it's dangerous by definition. But, you know, my instinct would be to suggest that that this is not the intention. And if, if, if Russia is going to do something ugly in Ukraine, frankly, I think in this case, they wouldn't really care whether we know this or, or not that would that would be a huge thing anyway so mike what do you think i think they're separate activities but i think that uh the crisis uh, the crisis over belarus pushing migrants to poland is becoming more of a kind of a european crisis i think ukraine is going to be a more direct challenge to u.s foreign policy um than the other one and i think that at the end of the day the narrative that's going to end up being first in the media that they're connected because the media traditionally does serial thinking. And second, in government, because government doesn't do nuance and it's gonna look at that problem with Russia backing Belarus and a second problem around Ukraine that's principally involves Russia and it's gonna group those problem sets, right? That's most likely what's gonna happen, I suspect. 
So but I guess just to push back just for a second, I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't know that they're not unrelated at all. I mean, when you line up all of these things with the gas crisis and the Balkans and Belarus, you know, I, it, I mean, it does appear that there is, I mean, I know we've been saying this for a while, but like a more assertive approach coming from the Kremlin, more pressure on Europe. I mean, do you not see it as part of that? I mean, I guess my sense is from the Kremlin's perspective, you know, you look at an EU that's largely distracted with Merkel on her way out, French elections around the corner, President Biden's popularity is has dipped in recent times. I mean, it, I, I, I mean, I wonder to what extent you think that 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 Putin senses that there is at least some opportunity. And as Kadri said, Ukraine in particular is such an emotional issue. Some people suggesting that he is thinking about legacy and what he wants Ukraine to be in the future. That all of these things kind of a I, I, that he's leaning into some of this opportunity. I guess maybe like tactically they're not connected, but it does seem in my mind, part of kind of a broader posture. He's, you know, shut down the Normandy process, doesn't want the diplomatic thing. Uh, he has cut off ties with NATO. I mean, th there's there's a lot happening. All right, well, let me try to take that on. Also, let me try to take on the question of Ukraine more specifically, at least give my take on what I think is happening there. I think tactically the, the events are happening are distinct, but from a bigger picture perspective, to me, first and foremost, Russia is very assertive. It's very activist because Russia is very stable from a macroeconomic and political perspective. The regime feels secure. And I just see that their reserves are an all-time high, right? So and so Much, I mean yeah. that to the point of like, you know, if financially, economically, they've created this pad that would enable them to to endure sanctions a bit more comfortably. I don't know. All these pieces line up in in a pretty interesting way. Yeah. The 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 system there actually has worked very hard to build up the capacity to withstand and resist US sanctions. There's a very low debt to GDP ratio. Its reserves have been built up not in dollars, but much more in euros and gold. So actually, the United States will have a much harder time sanctioning them. They have more reserves than they had at the beginning of this entire confrontation in 2014. Uh, energy prices are high. And they have Europeans very much over a barrel in terms of gas prices this winter as a result of supply chain shortages and some choices Europeans themselves make. Um, from, I think, from a Russian perspective, they're actually in a relatively good, solid position. They're about as strong as they have been in the last five, six years, economically and militarily. Um, from a US perspective, well, the US has made it very clear that the policy focuses China, that Europe is fundamentally a secondary theater. Ukraine might very well appear to be a secondary interest within that secondary theater. And I think probably Russia eyes a, a reprioritization and degree of retrenchment in US foreign policy from Europe, the area, the theater that matters, right? The area where Russian core interests lie, focusing and shifting efforts much more towards Asia Pacific. It's, you know, they're, they're certainly not ignorant of these facts. And turning to the issue of Ukraine, I think, um, here, I'd like to add to Kadri's wonderful comments, at least, at least offer my take on what's driving, because folks have asked, well, why now? I said, well, the reasons for why now actually date back pretty far. There are at least two things that have been taking place. They became very clear in Russian writing and statements this year. The first is that the political process, Minsk, is a dead end from the Russian point of view. They don't believe any Ukrainian leadership will be strong enough to deliver any on Russian political aims, right? 
and they've instead switched to fully delegitimizing and discrediting the Zelensky administration. I mean, Medvedev literally has an article in October in Commerçant, the title of which is why it's pointless to have any more contacts with Ukrainian authorities. And he proceeds with a five bullet list of why he's essentially discrediting the Zelensky administration to the maximum extent possible. If Putin's July lengthy treatise on Ukraine, positioning it historically as a foreign project, right? And again, discrediting Ukrainian authorities didn't fully convey to you the attitudes inside Moscow, then Medvedev's article in October certainly should. Um, the second part of this is that uh, there's, it, it seems very clear in Russia that the red line has shifted on Ukraine and it was really not about Ukraine becoming a formal member of NATO. It's about US and UK defense cooperation with Ukraine. And if Ukraine is functionally a military ally of the United States, if the United States has more forces, more exercises, if it's using Ukrainian territory for bomber overflights, for intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance flights, and if US begins basing things in Ukraine, here we have a very interesting issue. Because I think from the Russian perspective, one of their biggest fears is that eventually US missile systems or other capabilities will end up being based in Ukraine. There's actually no reason why they wouldn't, right? Logically, there's nothing preventing that happening beyond the political agreement between us and Kiev. And to them, that is very much a red line. And I think there's a narrative that emerged this year. It wasn't very clear, at least certainly to me, until reading it this year. And Putin has said this several times. He said it as most recently as Valdai in October. But the issue is not Ukraine becoming part of NATO, right? The issue is what's happening on Ukrainian territory, uh, U.S. training centers there and the like. And he specifically said, well, we don't know what those are. They could become anything. And at any time, there could be, you know, U.S. missiles uh, based and positioned around Kharkiv. You know, like this is an eventuality he foresees. So from his perspective, it is very possible that they don't see any status quo or stable equilibrium. They see a situation where increased Ukrainian ensconcement in U.S. security orbit is going to take them to a place where they're going to have to take military action down the line, right? And once, once leaders get into this discussion with themselves, they start talking themselves into use of force. And they begin asking the question, if use of force is inevitable, if there's no diplomatic way to achieve your objectives, right? Would it be better to do it now? Or would it be better to wait till later when it's more costly and more difficult, right? And so folks might say that Russia is gonna pay tremendous price on sanctions and political opprobrium and isolation. Well, they may have considered that for sure, although that's not deterred them in the winter offensive of 2015 or 2014. So if your thesis is the economic sanctions deter Russia, I'm going to tell you, you're not going to find a lot of successful use cases for that theory. Um, but they're probably considering that actually they'd, they'd pay a lot less if they did it now than if they waited. That might be the debate they're having, to be perfectly frank. Mm -hmm. But I guess the question is, so, but I mean, it goes back to Kadri's point about what the ultimate objective is. So if they feel that no future Ukrainian leader can implement a political solution that they could live with, then what's the alternative? Uh, the alternative is that they can take half of Eastern Ukraine and pose a political settlement on Ukraine that Ukraine will have to implement. And uh, at the very least, if that is not a solution, uh, to their desires and needs, they will essentially have created an entire new border, an entire new security buffer. I want folks to be really uh, clear about the scale of military operation that Russia is deliberating. This is not like a, a further incursion into the Donbass. The, thi the things that 
the positioning of Russian forces and the messaging has been very clear from them, starting from the very beginning of this year, that a future military contingency with Ukraine will be on a dramatically larger scale and it will ultimately involve the destruction of the Ukrainian state. They've been saying that since the beginning of this year. Like they are not talking about any further minor land grabs. I guess that's one question, you know, some alternative theories you hear is like Kadri was saying that they've so had it with Zelensky um, that they could do something that would be much less significant than you're saying, Mike, with the intention of, of de destabilizing Zelensky. But then I guess the problem is if the calculus is that no future leader can deliver what they want, then, you know, what, what do they accomplish with just destabilizing Zelensky? Well, the belief uh, seems to be that um, this is with our Western countries that are actually um, propping up Ukrainian politicians who have anti-Russian views. So the sort of idea is that when the West is out of Ukraine, then Ukraine will sort of return to its default position as a Russia-friendly country. Um, and you know, Russians really, it's, it's a puzzle to me because I think they really get it wrong. I mean, they don't, often their analyses might be, you know, cynical, but, but unpleasantly correct, unpleasantly to us in, in, many, in many areas. But Ukraine, they, um, they haven't visited. Everyone I meet in, in Russia, they say that I was last there in 2013. They haven't seen the country, how it has developed since 2014. And I think they have a hard time even understanding Ukraine because in some ways, Ukraine and Russia are completely the opposite. They are organized in opposite way. I mean, Russia is top-down country. Ukraine is bottom-up country. I mean, Ukraine, someone put it actually quite well um, during the last war, that that was the war of the Russian state against Ukrainian society, while the Ukrainian state and Russian society remained paralyzed. I thought it was very, very precise, but that actually means that they cannot even talk because a state cannot talk with society of another country. I mean, these are not compatible partners for, for problems like these. And, and Putin doesn't quite understand the constraints that Ukrainian society puts upon its leaders. And, and leadership, I mean, let's face it, Ukraine doesn't have very impressive political leaders. Um, so, and, and I think that sort of leads Russian thinking into they just analyze the country wrongly. But I think Mike, Mike might be right about calculations uh, about military uh, action. But if they have decided that, that they need to do it, then yes. And that was actually what, what happened in 2014 as well. The thinking in Moscow was that if we don't take Crimea, then NATO forces end up being there. And, and they went in and took it as opposed to trying to even come, come to some agreement with a new leadership, which I think would have been totally possible, but they didn't even try. If I could just follow up, Kadri, uh, on, on what you said about how the Russians go about their analysis. They analyze the, where Ukraine and the Ukraine uh, political system is, political leadership. How do you think Moscow is analyzing the U.S. right now? 
in terms of political leadership, where we are, what our response might be. Uh, you know, uh, certainly they have the experience of the Obama administration and the red line there, et cetera. And then many of those same people are now back in power uh, here in Washington. And, uh, and once again, Putin is trying to analyze, are we seeing something different here? Is this actually a time when we need to, to do something? Uh, uh, Russia needs to do something based on uh, our analysis of where the White House and where the administration is. But what, how do you think they're looking on us right now and how is that impacting their decision-making? I think they respect President Biden. And I, I think that is sincere. And, and that also uh, applies to Putin personally. I mean, the way he talked about Geneva meeting and about President Biden, um, I think that is the case. I think he managed to impress them by uh, picking his fights, not you know lecturing Russia about its sins across the board. There would be no shortage. But he picked the few issues he wanted fixed, cybersecurity, strategic stability. And, and that impressed Russians quite deeply, I must say, because they, they expected something else. I think also signaling ahead of the summit was good. Um, it was interesting, by the way, in May when I was in Moscow, you know, that was soon after Biden had given that interview where he was asked if Putin is a killer, and that made many waves in Europe. In Moscow, um, it was no big deal at all. I mean, it wasn't a media event, and the experts, of course, had noticed it, but they understood it for what it was. Journalists questioned to which Biden answered by focusing elsewhere. So, to answer half of your question, yeah, they, they respect you. And I think uh, I think more than any recent president. I must confess, as a Westerner, I was really proud of Biden's prestige in Russia. I don't get that very often, but, but with him I did. So very well done. How does, however, that affect the planning on Ukraine? I really do not know. Because, you know, in my view, doing something truly bad in Ukraine would wreck the whole relationship, which I think they value. Uh, so I do not know, but at least I think that some signaling from Biden and phone calls with Bill Burns, um, don't hurt. Mike? Yeah, I'll, I'll just add the kind of great comments. I think the problem is the only thing they value more than this relationship is Ukraine and, and very consistently. The one thing that Putin seems to definitely care more about than his relationship with the United States and Europeans is the outcome in Ukraine. It seems to be what put to that choice. He's he's fairly regularly chosen the other option and and use of force to achieve political aims when they feel that they have they have no other way uh, to get there. So I to me the jury is very much still out. I think they're deliberating on it, but it looks very clear that they're considering a large scale military option. Um, I I do. Think just reading his writing in a statements, and if you think that Putin is a person who believes what he says, and I think a lot of times he does, um, he genuinely does, and he believes the things he signs his name to in writing as well, he reads them. Um, it's clear that one, there's a recognition in Russia that overall the political strategy in Ukraine has failed. You can see that at the end of his July article where he says, I don't think Ukrainians want to take the Donbass. And this negotiation is not going to go anywhere and yada, yada. And you can read it and you can say, say, oh, huh, no kidding. 
you figured out that that, that plan is not going to work. It's not going to succeed. And secondarily, you see in the article in his writing and his statements that he genuinely believes a large number, a large percentage of Ukrainians want to be friends with Russia, that they are one people, and that they perhaps could be very, would be welcoming to Russian-conducted regime change, that he believes the opposition to a pro-Russian vector in foreign policy is simply like a parasitic state entity that is installed and maintained by Western countries. He sees the Ukrainian state as a Western project, and he thinks the Ukrainian society is actually principally more pro-Russian or at the very least very balanced. Those are his assumptions. Right, but course, that was also, I mean, not to the same degree, the assumption in 2014, right, when they started, yeah. they, they believed that when they came in, there was going to be a groundswell of support. Did he not learn a lesson after that? No, no. His, his interpretation of that, you know, folks, sometimes when they're proven wrong, when their beliefs are proven wrong, they just double down and explain to themselves why, why events did not time. unfold the way they expect. It's actually not that often with policymakers when they're clearly proven wrong that they admit the fact that they were completely wrong. I'm not, I don't encounter that nearly as often in D.C., to be perfectly honest. So instead, he's written that all this, that all this sentiment is being suppressed, that Ukraine has become a repressive state, and there are lots of folks in Ukraine right, who have sentiments favorable to Russia, but they are being repressed by this by the state. That's the way he's explained it. And I'm not surprised because uh, sometimes leaders don't do learning. They just simply do not adapt their views, especially when the more fundamental assumptions are disproven, right? They don't want to discard them. They want to find explanations for why things didn't turn out the way you know, they did. I mean, I, I mean, that just from authoritarian politics too, it obviously depends on what he hears up the chain too, right? right. And if people are able to explain it away, it shapes right. his understanding right. of what happened right. the first time. Right, one of the biggest problems, just to, just sorry, just to add another comment, one of the biggest problems, and I think people are very much aware of this, was that his, he was consistently getting input and advice from Mitvichuk, a person who was very well known in uh, Ukrainian establishment. And this person, you know, leaders choose who they're gonna listen to, right? They have intelligence assessments, which are honestly always fighting with, you know, a couple of close advisors that a president might turn to, to get inputs or to get ideas from. So yeah, you're, you're absolutely right to suggest that not only does he believe this, but he might believe this because that's what people who are advising him believe. That's the information he's kind of getting. Yeah. Yeah. What I could add, uh, I mean, the wider establishment actually learned some lessons. Uh, I could witness that in, um, 2018, I was in Moscow interviewing various people exactly at the anniversary of Crimea annexation, and there was some official celebration, uh, but no private celebrations, and everyone I met, which included some government officials, they all, even without asking, said that our analysis of Ukraine proved completely wrong. But of course, it's not a given that they replace one wrong analysis with a correct one. It's, it's possible to just embark on another wrong set of assumptions. And I'm not sure that, yeah, that learning curve actually ever, ever reached Putin. And that's why his current isolation also um, makes me worried because one thing is, yeah, that he chooses whom he listens to. But simply objectively, his contacts are much more limited during the pandemic because, you know, how many how many people does he want to let close to him and with all the quarantine it involves? So it's it's even more limited. So sort of the little uh, 
knowledge from unorthodox or sort of feedback from unorthodox sources that earlier he would have got. I think now it is in 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 much shorter supply. He himself actually, I think he he misses contacts. I mean, he clearly wanted to talk with us at Valdai, and uh, the meeting kept going longer. So he, it's not that he avoids people, but uh, pandemic makes that he sees far fewer than than he used to. One other thing, I mean, kind of just ticking through some of the data points that people are raising in this context is the um, Ukraine's use of the Turkish drones to strike Russian positions. How does that fit into this narrative in your view, Mike? Um, I, I don't think that leaders respond to these small tactical events, to be perfectly clear. But what about the military? So I, it's not, it, all these things aren't that meaningful really necessarily to the military either. I'll tell you what I've kind of been observing over the past year. Uh, the Russian military has suddenly found a lot of money to generate a reserve force that they have not found money for in the past. And they are very rapidly building a large set of reserves. This is a military that is clearly considering the possibility that they may have to potentially hold a sizable amount of land and territory in the coming future. The Russian military also began tactically training for dealing with Javelin anti-tank guided missiles, right? And Russian tanks, particularly in Southern military districts throughout the year, started appearing with high IR output devices designed to basically deal with a fire and forget control system on the Javelin. I won't go down this rabbit hole except to say, there's nothing new about the Javelin, it's a pretty old missile. And all of a sudden this year, the Russian military has decided that this might be an issue early on in some kind of fight. And uh, we, can, we can look very clearly at the map of what country is Javelin anti-tank guided missiles that they might consider suddenly dealing with as of this year. So I make another comment. So there are more data points than just Russian military activity that's been taking place, particularly in recent months. There are other data points that are worth examining and looking at. And... There's worrisome signs that other units in the central military district, which is thousands of miles away from Russia's western borders, might be getting ready to move and reinforce the central military district units that are already in the western military district. And even more worrisome, that elements of the National Guard, the uh, West Guardian, might move as well. So just I, I, I'm not here to, on the one hand, alarm people, but also just want to make clear that because you hear, you hear people dispute in the press, well, it's just a couple of military moves. Say, no, there's actually a lot of different data points over the course of the year that paint this picture. It's not one or two things. Can I, Jim, I know you wanted to ask a question, but I'm kind of just going through like, you know, the, the things that people are bringing up in this conversation. So some will say, oh, it was just they were upset about the use of the drones and they want to smack them back. Okay, so we, we took that on. But like the other thing that people really like to say too is, you know, A, the Rush, the Ukrainian military is like in a categorically different place than it was in 2014. The Russian public is maybe in a different place than it was in 2014. That, you know, that people are not this kind of the euphoria that was that that the public kind of had glommed onto in 2014 has really faded away. Um, and so, you know, the thing that people love to say is then would Putin then tolerate, you know, Russians coming home in body bags? And does is that really what Putin wants at this juncture? So how do we think about that from like a domestic standpoint? Is is this something that you think the Russian public is willing 
to support or tolerate? They will not be asked. Uh, but but yeah, no, domestic logic uh, is, is against the war on, on all levels. I but mean, they can explain it, right? They can react with their feet in theory. But I know I know that the, the, the repression, the repressive situation is also very different than it was in 2014. But but people, I mean, they might not be asked, but they can respond. Yeah, well, people are leaving anyway, but it's it will, you know, it will it will never get massive enough quickly enough to to affect the regime's decision making. But they do care about their popularity. The Kremlin conducts opinion polls and focus groups regularly, and and they obviously know that the demand domestically is is for social welfare and and some sort of development as opposed to war. Um, even, <clears throat> and uh, I mean, the success of Crimea cannot be repeated because Crimea was unique. There is no no other Crimea, no, no piece of land with similar symbolic uh, status. And also, the political regime is tired. You can see that, and it's not it's not like it's on the verge of collapse or running out of resources. I think they have resources for uh, yeah. I mean, financially, they are doing very well. I think there is lots of managerial talent around as well. But you just can see the tiredness of people. And I, I talked with, I mean, some fairly high-ranking uh, insiders or, or people who are close to insiders. Everyone is somehow hungry for renewal. And for many people, it's about, you know, social mobility. Uh Many people occupy the same posts for 20 years. So the people who would want to move on, uh, everyone is stuck. And, you know, when you are there, you, you, you feel it. But, um, and I don't think that a war is, you know, a good stress test for, for, for that kind of system. So all that hedges against it. But yet again, if, if Putin's logic is that it needs to be done, so let so, so better do it now because later all these things will be even worse than, yeah. Go ahead, Mike. Well, well yeah, thank you all very much. I mean, this is, uh, there's a lot to think about from, from what you all have been saying and I, I'm, I'm tracking with all of it. But let me ask you if, this is for both of you, if you are uh, on the NSC staff right now and you've got to present option papers to Biden on how are we going to respond to Ukraine? Uh, how do we respond to what's happening on the border of Belarus, Poland? Uh, well, you know, knowing that Moscow is looking very carefully at what the US reaction will be. If we had a NATO ambassador, <laughs> if we had Julie Smith at NATO, uh, what would the instructions be to her in terms of the US position uh, at NATO and what we would like to see NATO do? What, what would be in your options paper? What would you, what would you uh, suggest to Biden right now, I, I maybe moving the uh, armor brigade combat team uh, in, at NATO, moving it and having a little exercise near the border or uh, just phone calls and sanctions rattling, you know? I mean, what's, what's the, what's the what's, what do you, what would you advise, Audrey? Mm. You're writing it today, based on what you know today. Yeah, I um, I think uh, 
a phone call that outlines a credible threat. I'm not sure what what that could be, but I I, I think I mean some people in Washington will be in the position to figure out something that is serious, something that is realistic, and something that would hurt. Um, but I think um, that would actually also um, need to be balanced with um, with some signaling about the U.S. and intentions, uh, such as, um, and here I'm not going to make myself unpopular, but the message probably should be that, that we are not intending to um, invite Ukraine to join NATO, uh, at least. I mean, no one can promise it for but but never ever. But but Biden can can say that about himself. And I, you know, we all know that NATO door to Ukraine is 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 pretty shut for now. And it might be good to spell it out because if 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 Russian thing if Russia thinks that you know Ukraine will be invited to join to join NATO, then yet again incentive is to do something fast in order to prevent it. Sort of logic that actually may, may have been behind the war in, in Georgia after the Bucharest summit. So uh, I know that the message of reassurance is, is not something that will <laughs> make me popular at all. But I think given the way Russia misreads Western intentions and thinking, and, and especially when it comes to Ukraine, I think some of that will also be necessary. Mike? Yeah, I mean, I, I think they've already done a lot of things that they can do. Bill Burns went over there. Clearly, he made some credible threats about how Russia would essentially ruin the stabilizing relationship that we're trying to build now. And would likely incur greater sanctions. Most likely the best threat they're going to make is against Russian sovereign debt, um, which is one thing the United States can do, and some more secondary sanctions. I think the biggest challenge is corralling Europeans, which is probably what the administration is doing right now to figure out what common policy position can be had there. I think military signaling they're already doing now in the Black Sea, it's largely meaningless. And I strongly discourage people assuming that military signaling is going to communicate anything thoughtful. And I don't think anybody in Russia thinks the United States is going to fight on behalf of Ukraine. I don't know a lot of people here think that either. Um, so I would be very cautious about uh, how we make statements of political support for Ukraine without putting our credibility forward in terms of any commitment, because I don't think we're going to honor any of those. And let's just be frank about it, right? And it, 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 we don't, it, it could very well be a repeat of a Russia-Georgia war on a larger, just on a much larger scale. Um, so yeah, I think, I think the, the truth is that U.S. options are limited. U.S. interests at stake are limited. And Biden administration has been sibling that very much this year, too. And I think a big question is, you know, how to, uh, how to unify European position together with us and make sure we're aligned with them in terms of potential responses. I think one thing the Russians are debating, which is probably an interesting question in Moscow, is whether a large military operation in Ukraine is really going to generate all this opprobrium in Europe and, and European unity and a new policy of containment or if they're going to end up starting a new conversation with Europeans about security architecture in Europe and try to get Europeans to, to agree to some new condominium and, and, and that the whole act would shock the system. Now, you might think that's very unlikely, and, and I think so too, 
But that what you and I think don't matter doesn't matter. What matters is what people in Moscow think, right? It's not our perception, it's their perception. People in the transatlantic community have a much better understanding of how the transatlantic community works than people in Russia do. And it's very obvious as soon as you begin talking to Russians. They don't know how a lot of things work in Europe, in American political society, and also to a lesser extent in Ukraine, which is very clear they don't. <laughs> they, they don't understand how some of these things work. So they might have a very different impression about how this is going to play out on poll. And last comment to what Andrea had said earlier. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I, I, the Russian public has no interest in, in foreign adventures. That's very clear. They're just in domestic policies and, and the like. That's true. But uh, the Russian regime isn't very threatened anymore by Russian public protests. And as Kadri said, nobody's going to ask them. Since when does the public get a voice in foreign policy and military action? It doesn't. And they may very well think that, look, there's no major war. This is a two-week operation to them. They could be done within two weeks doing this. So you have to realize that from, from their perspective and their planning, they might think that this is going to be a two-week crisis and then it'll largely be over after that. They might think that there's not going to be a long war or a long campaign, and they have good reason to think that. Ukrainian military is better, but Russian military is a lot better than it was in 2014. Russia has absolute quantitative and qualitative superiority. People should not be fooled about it, and they should not think that Ukraine stands a strong chance on the battlefield. Not for, not for a long time, it doesn't. So it's just the reality of the situation. Um, and that's probably what the calculations are in Moscow as well. Just being frank about it, I don't, I don't think they're necessarily they're necessarily thinking of this of a long war that's going to ruin public that's going to ruin public opinion. Yeah, those are the good. Those are good points. I mean, I guess you know, and I, you know, we just did a session that brought together a transatlantic group on Ukraine, and I think you know the message coming from many of our European colleagues was that they're, you know, that Europe is very divided on this issue, right? And, you know, what we don't know what comes with the coalition in Germany, you know, it's unlikely that they will be much more hawkish on Russia, even if the Greens have, you know, important seats and the, like we said at the top, um, the French election, I guess it's basically that was a story that there's really no unity within the EU 27 or within NATO exactly what to do. And I think, you know, clearly that's one of the things that Putin is reading. But on the signaling, I mean, you, you touched on a couple of things. I mean, the goal then has to be about how do we change Putin's calculus? And as Kadri laid out, you know, is there some sort of credible deterrent that we can put on the table beforehand? Um, the question is whether we, we have said there's a few things that Putin cares more about than Ukraine. So, you know, I don't know that sanctions threatening sanctions on sovereign debt or other things is really enough to deter, to deter Putin. So, I mean, it is a, it's a, it's an incredibly tricky situation. I know some in the transatlantic community are thinking about what NATO's role should be with Ukraine. For example, should there be a more kind of organized institutionalized effort to support Ukrainian defenses, whether it's through using common funds or NATO money, basically to signal that we're not going to accept Putin's new red lines in Ukraine. So, right, he's tried to he's moved from no NATO membership to no NATO infrastructure in Ukraine. And are, is the transatlantic community going to accept that new line or are we going to step up and signal that we're not willing to accept that? So I think those are the conversations that are that are, I mean, really important to get right and to get right relatively soon. Yeah, my suggestion is that, um, I mean, longer term strategy should be to, to manage the situation until the day when 
Russia's calculus changes because they see that what they want in Ukraine is impossible in principle, and not because the West denies it them, but because Ukraine denies it, or sort of laws of life and nature deny it. I think that is really the case. I, I think you know the sort of control Russia wants over Ukraine is impossible in in any sort of cheap manner you know if you want to finland as ukraine you need to be soviet union or 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 more but for as long as putin doesn't see it that way that danger is 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 there but i think you know eventually they have to come to terms with it because that's that's a fact of life and facts of life even vladimir putin accepts when he sees them as as such but that could take a long while well, I think we could keep going for at least another hour. I mean, we didn't touch on kind of how what we do in this theater vis-a-vis Ukraine could affect she and kind of other theaters, um, U.S. credibility and all that stuff. But anyway, I think we'll save it for another conversation. I mean, I think this is probably, um, unfortunately, an issue that's going to stay with us, you know, through the winter. So maybe we'll check in with both of you again um, in, you know, a couple of weeks and see where we are, because this is obviously the thing to 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 be watching and and as, I mean and, and as a transatlantic community Kadri having you from the Europe side you know thinking through what our options and what appropriate response should be so hopefully this is a conversation that um that we can continue here as a group so thank you to both of you for joining us um and um yeah thank you <laughs> thank you yeah, thanks for having us